Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we'll continue conversations with the authors of a few of the chapters in the book, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation, edited by Carolyn Karcher. The book is filled with moving and insightful stories, as the subtitle says, of personal transformation, of Jews who saw the world one way, who learned more, experienced more, and came away with a very changed point of view, decoupling the assumed relationship of Judaism and Zionism. Last week, we spoke with Chris Gotchel, Rabbi Brent Rosen, and we had just started talking with editor and contributor Carolyn Karcher. We'll finish our visit with Carolyn and then go on to talk to Shoshana Madmoni Gerber and Emily Siegel. But first, Carolyn, you had been talking about your background, especially growing up as a Jew in post-World War II Japan. So how did Carolyn Karcher go from this lesson from your mother that, you know, that I guess really Israel's going to be safety. You can't be safe anywhere in the world. There's always going to be anti-Semitism. How did you go from that point of view to becoming the editor of Stories of Personal Transformation, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism? That seems like a long way you traveled. Yes, I remained a believer in Zionism and in the idea that Israel represented safety and sort of a guarantee against another Holocaust for Jews. For many years after that, the turning point for me was Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982. That was the moment when I began questioning everything I'd been taught. I had always assumed that Israel was almost a utopian society, that it was a very virtuous state. I idealized Israel, as I think everybody I knew did. But the Israeli invasion of Lebanon was a big reason to doubt. As it turned out, during part of that time, my husband and I were in France visiting his family. He's French. My husband was working for the World Bank, and he had had one or two missions to Lebanon for the World Bank. He loved Beirut. He loved the Lebanese people. And so he was deeply shocked and horrified by the invasion and was paying a lot of attention to it. Also in France, the coverage of it was much more in-depth than in the States. I saw on TV in France, and we read in Le Monde, details about the bombings and details about the indiscriminate attacks on civilians and just the, the, the havoc and destruction that the Israeli army was wreaking all through Lebanon. After I got back, I think it was, was when the Sabra and Shatila massacres occurred. That, of course, was the climax. That was the, the most shocking part of it. The fact that the Israeli army provided lighting and essentially opened the Palestinian refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila to the Lebanese Christian militias and basically let them go through on a rampage and massacre Palestinians. The people left in the camps at this point were mostly old men, women, and children. So it was, it was horrifying. Also, after we got back, I was walking down the street and saw a poster advertising a teach-in on the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Of course, I decided I would go to it. Even more than what I saw and read, 
That was really the beginning of my evolution and my learning that began to detach me from the Zionist ideology that I had imbibed as a child. The main speaker at that event, I was convinced was Palestinian. She spoke very passionately and she said, you all have never seen the destructive face of Israel. You're told that Israel has made the desert bloom. You collect money in the States to plant trees in Israel. Nobody tells you that Israel uproots thousands of olive trees and demolishes houses. You've never seen this destructive face of Israel which is, of course, what was shown very much in the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. She also talked about the settlers, and the settlers, this was really still at a beginning point in 1982. Planting of settlements began as soon as Israel won the 1967 war, very, very soon thereafter. But still in 1982, there were many fewer settlements than there are now in our own day. I really knew very little about them. I just assumed that these were very pious Jews who wanted to make aliyah and to fulfill what they thought was their religious duty by going and settling in Israel. I didn't know about how violent and provocative their actions toward Palestinians were or how fanatic they were. Anyway, listening to this woman talk, I just couldn't listen to her. My stomach was all in knots. I kept trying to sort of shut her out of my mind because I was so so deeply shocked. And then I learned that she wasn't, after all, Palestinian. She was an Israeli Jewish human rights lawyer named Leah Tzemel. So realizing that these horrible things I was being told about Israel were being told by an Israeli Jew, I was able to start listening to her. I find this is true with many Jews, that once they are told these things or they learn these things from someone they can trust or believe, then they can begin listening to Palestinians themselves. But in the beginning, I couldn't have, and I know this is true of many, many Jews. So that was the beginning of my evolution. It wasn't an overnight thing. There was a literature table, and I picked up literature, and I began reading. I kept reading for a long time. I went to more demonstrations, but it was a slow process. As has been said by some of the other people I talked to, being Zionist as a Jew became the default setting. Yes. If, if you're Jewish, you didn't have the label Zionist, but that was in fact what you were. Did you get much heat? Did you get much criticism? Your family, your friends, your synagogue? Did people say you've really gone off the deep end? Well, I learned as soon as I began trying to talk to people about how I was feeling about the Lebanon war and to tell them about the teaching that people were very hostile. So I learned that if I wanted to keep my friends and not anger and alienate family members, I had just better keep my mouth shut on that issue. Could we check, Carolyn, a few things about how you brought the whole collection together? Again, there's some 40 contributors to Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. The reason we have you here for Spirit in Action, because it's such an important peace and justice issue. It's probably the peace and justice issue of our lives to deal with this. How did you bring these 40 people together? Well, first of all, my scholarship has never been in, on this subject. My scholarship has been on racial justice in the U.S., and I did a lot of work on the abolitionist movement. But I had gotten to a point where I was very active in Jewish Voice for Peace and was spending a lot of time doing this, and I wanted a project that would bring my activism together with my scholarship. Through JVP, I was finally meeting many, many people who 
had traveled the same kind of road that I had and hearing their stories. And those stories seemed to me very powerful and really important to bring before the public. Initially, I thought of something like maybe a dozen stories of 20 pages each, a short book. But after I began soliciting narratives, people who I hadn't solicited came and offered their narratives to me and more and more came in. From the beginning, I realized that it would be very important to have young people because young people are really leading the movement right now. The other group that also I was told would be important would be Sephardi Mizrahi Jews. JVP as an organization had recently gone through some thinking about this and was being pushed by its Sephardi Mizrahi members to be less Ashkenazi-centric. So the then head of JVP told me it's very important that you try to include as many as you can of Sephardi Mizrahi Jews. I am kind of interested. You mentioned your scholarly work has never been in this area. I mean, you were a professor of English, American studies, and women's studies, but never anything concentrating on the Middle East or particularly about religious prejudice. I suspect, however, that your scholastic pursuits in some way fueled your pursuit of peace and justice. Absolutely. But actually, it's a little bit the other way around. I'm a child of the 60s. And the anti-war movement is what shaped my scholarship. So it was my involvement in the anti-war movement and the ways in which the Vietnam War completely transformed my perspective on the U.S. and opened my eyes to U.S. imperialism, to racism, to Native American dispossession and genocide. The anti-war movement opened my eyes to these things, and that is what led me actually to focus on these things as a scholar. Then you can't have that perspective as a scholar and not eventually begin thinking about the ways in which those issues apply to Israel and Palestine, especially given that I began teaching in 1981 and 1982 was the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. It was impossible for me not to begin to see those connections. I didn't really have the courage to bring those connections out into my teaching openly, and I wish I had, but those connections became clearer and clearer to me as time went on. One of my staple courses was the Survey of American Literature. Of course, we always had a long unit on the Puritans, and the Puritans considered themselves the new Israel. They saw themselves as founding the new Jerusalem in America. And, of course, very early, they began massacring Native Americans, the Pequot War, King Philip's War, many such massacres. So the fact that they would quote the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible in justification of the horrible things they were doing to Native Americans, I couldn't help but begin to see those parallels and make those connections. One of the big issues in life, as far as I see it, is identity. And whatever we have as identity becomes a specially protected center for us. And so if a person is part of the chosen people, or I'm Israeli, or I'm a woman, or I'm a man, or I'm a Quaker in my case, if these things become strong identity forms for us, we tend to turn away threats to that identity as justifiable, right? And certainly after World War II and the Holocaust, it seemed kind of justifiable that, you know, whatever I have to do to keep my people alive, 
us. You know, it's the big personal identification, us, we are important. We all understand that you do that when it hits home, right? I'm going to protect my family. I'm a pacifist as a Quaker. It would be really hard for me to sit by and not use violence to protect my family still. I think I could do it. I think I would choose to do it, but I definitely see the terror in the heart. Have you had any of those kinds of qualms or issues? If Israel is we, if the Jewish people is we, how can I do something that might endanger them? Well, I realize that that is a very important issue for the many Jews who are perhaps troubled by what Israel is doing, but are keeping silent or are, as you say, being protective. But for me, it was more, if my people are committing such injustice toward others, if they, instead of learning the lesson of the Holocaust, this must never happen again to any other people, and we, having been subject to such ferocious persecution, must ensure that no other group be persecuted. For me, seeing my people persecute another group so cruelly in the name of our safety was simply untenable. So... It depends on what your identity is based on. If your identity is based on principles, then how can you violate those principles in the name of your identity? If your identity is based merely on ethnicity and on the idea of security or safety for the people you define as your group, then of course you take the other position. Nobody is denying the fact that uh, there's been a terrible recrudescence of anti-Semitism recently. But it seems to many of us that, well, first of all, it's, it's clear that this recrudescence is coming mainly from white supremacists and neo-Nazis, certainly not from people on the left, contrary to the claims that one sees in the media. And it seems to many of us that Israel by continuing to defend such cruelty and such persecution of the Palestinians is contributing to anti-Semitism rather than alleviating it. I mean, if Jews defend this and say that this is indispensable to the safety of Jews, then how can people not become anti-Jewish? You know, if Americans are defending the Vietnam War, it's very easy for people to become (laughs) anti-American. The distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism becomes difficult to maintain when Jews maintain that when American Jews or Jews in the rest of the world insist on defending what Israel is doing and saying that it keeps them safe. I mean, Netanyahu insists that Israel represents Jews, that Israel is the representative of the Jewish people around the world. So he is forcing people to make that connection. And then, of course, the leading Jewish organizations in this country are all continuing to defend everything Israel does. They are upholding the idea that Israel does represent the Jews. And I get it that that leads to anti-Semitism, because when people are complicit in what some members of their group are doing, there are a lot of Germans who were silent while the Nazis were doing their evil work. And yes, therefore complicit. And fortunately, Germany has turned around and apologized since then, has turned their society to teaching against the ideas that supported the Nazis. 
of course, we haven't made that reversal yet. But I think in your work with Jewish Voice for Peace and in bringing together this collection, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation, you're doing the kind of work that we need to get to a place where we wouldn't have a justification for anti-Zionism. I mean, hatred and I think victimization of people will happen, whether it's justified or not. It's just that we don't want to fuel the fire unnecessarily. And I think through your work, you're helping put out some of that fire. And I thank you so much for doing that. And I thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much, Carolyn. Thank you very much, Mark. And again, Carolyn Karcher is editor of Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. It's well worth reading the entire book. There's 40 stories here of people who've gone through the questioning and facing the issues themselves, all of them Jewish. And I think it's absolutely important to see it from the inside as Carolyn brings together. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've got two more guests yet to come for today's Spirit in Action, but first I wanted to remind you that the website for Spirit in Action, and also for our program, Song of the Soul, is northernspiritradio.org, a site full of all kinds of wonderful stuff, including all of our shows of the past 15 years, links to all our guests, and hopefully you'll be adding your ratings and comments on these and other shows. Add your voice to the riches, please, and then stare at the donate button for a moment and ask yourself whether you would like to help make this kind of programming continue, because we depend on you, not corporations or government, to support our work. An alternate voice requires support from the alternative community, and it would be even more wonderful to know that you're supporting the kind of local community radio stations that carry this program, 40-some of them at this point. Prime the well of action and wisdom that Community Radio provides by donating your time and money to them first, and then, if you can, help Northern Spirit Radio. We've got two more guests upcoming, following on our visit with Carolyn Karcher, editor of Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. Next up is Shoshana Madmoni Gerber, who will help us focus on the Mizrahim, that is, the Jews who coexisted for many centuries alongside Muslims in Arab countries like Yemen, Iraq, Iran, Morocco, Ethiopia, and on and on, with the key difference that they were not from the areas of Europe, which were the ancestral homes of the Ashkenazi Jews. Shoshana Madmoni Gerber joins us via Zoom from Massachusetts. Shoshi, thank you so very, very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me. I'm especially delighted to have you as part of this program talking about reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, the stories of personal transformation, because you come at it from a different point of view of anyone else that I've interviewed for this. And that is because you're actually of Yemeni Jewish origin, you actually are an Arab Israeli. And a lot of people don't even know that those two can go together. At what age did they actually go together well for you? For me, they were polar opposites for a really long time. I did not understand even the remote possibility that they can coexist, these two definitions, until way into my, probably my master's degree. So a really long time. But I grew up, as you said, I'm a daughter of parents that immigrated to Israel from Yemen. They immigrated to Israel along with the, you know, the big massive airlift of Yemeni Jews in 1949. 
Uh, so I was born and raised in Israel in the mid-60s. And so my childhood, 70s, mainly 80s, it's a time where very, very far from thinking about my identity as Arab. Arabs were always presented to us as the enemy. And judging by any text that I read in school, any representation on broadcast media and paid newspapers, we, it was always Arabs versus Jews. We were raised to reject anything that was Arab within our identity. So it's not that we didn't identify it and we didn't see it because we did. My, I grew up in a household where Arabic was spoken, especially between my father and my grandmother who lived right next door to us. So I grew up listening. We are always joking in my house that there were some words that we grew up on that were Arabic and we didn't even realize it because it was so embedded in what we said all the time that we thought it was Hebrew. I mean, still, this, the Arabic slang controls the Hebrew language now. So many of the words people will say, yalla, and sababa, and basa, and all these words are Arabic words. But we grew up, we were kids of the, you know, the traditional melting pot philosophy, very similar to what was presented in the United States, except that it was in Israel. This was the message. And we, like good Zionist soldiers, we did that. So it was erasing our accent. I still remember an incident when I was in third grade. I was standing in the, near the water fountain in the elementary school in my neighborhood with another friend. And we were talking, and sometimes when I think back to it, I just, I can't believe that we thought about it in third grade. And I was talking, and we said, you know, we need to start speaking more like our teacher, Ruth, who was Ashkenazi. And we were both Yemeni girls. And we said, okay, from today on, we're going to erase... You know, I don't know if you speak Arabic at all or you understand. I can say shukran. That's about it. Okay, not bad. (laughs) But Arabic is a semantic language, by the way, just like Hebrew. Um, So the right pronunciation of the guttural words, ah and ha, that's what we try to get rid of. Because in the Israeli public, that is often considered uneducated, unintelligent. And we did not want to sound like that. From that moment on, I erased my accent entirely and started to mimic what I thought was the right way to speak. That takes me to one of the topics I want to address right away, which was you mentioned throughout your story in Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, the contribution that you made there, you you talk about really looking forward to going in the military to become a great soldier of Zion, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. I mean, I, I always I explain that to my students now. I teach classes on ideology and culture and discourse. And I always say that even in a in place where army is mandatory, the states still want to make you want to do it. So the controlling narrative is of tales of heroism. I mean, you can even see it now with the pandemic with Trump. The way he wanted to normalize things is to say we are all, how did he say, like soldiers in this battle or something like that. You're all heroes. So this kind of language makes people want to do it. And I always tell my students, you know, at your age, at 18, when you, the same exact way that you're shopping for a college, we were shopping for an army unit. So we were in competition. We wanted to be the best. We wanted to be in the best eating to, to see who would sacrifice more. So all these ideologies that instilled to us is to make us want to do it willingly. You don't mention anything about this in your chapter in the book, 
but I suspect that being in the army could have given you opportunities for facing the other, the Arabs, you know, the Palestinians, but maybe you didn't. I don't know. They, I know a lot of people don't end up going across the borders. Right. So you're right. But for a lot of people, I've, I've done these interviews with writers and artists for a project that I call the Identity Project and talk to them about their moment of break. When was it? And I know in previous interviews, Caroline mentioned that for her, it was the Lebanon War. Another one of my interviewees, Sami Shalom Shitrit, talked about just facing what is, and I don't know if that's exactly what you meant in your question, but facing what was considered the enemy kind of turned him exactly around. And I know from other people whose stories I've read, narratives i read, especially Mizrahim, that all of a sudden, somebody is, I don't know, breaking into a house in Gaza or in the West Bank and seeing the soldier wrote it and the grandma praying. And she reminded him, he was from Iraqi descent, she reminded him of his grandmother and that shook him because all of a sudden he could see himself or his family in the face and the language and the prayer of this Palestinian woman. I did not experience much of that simply because I was not in the battlefield. I was a commander who trained soldiers male soldiers in a base near Ramallah in the West Bank, I trained them in basic training. So I never been to the battlefield. I've never really faced the enemy, quote unquote, in this way. So for me, the only thing that I kind of realized in the army was the distinction between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim in the different roles that we fulfilled. I could see who were the cooks, the guards, the drivers, and who were the commanders and who were the people who were in charge. And that's when I started to see difference. But again, it was one of those things that, you know, it, it forms for me understanding the process of identity formation and understanding, you know, reading critical thinking thinkers such as Stuart Hall and Franz Fanon and Foucault and understanding that we're talking about a long process, that things that happened to you in the past all of a sudden kind of connect to something that happens to you in the present and that in turn is affecting your future. So connecting the dots, these are things that happened, you know, the cracks happened slowly until there was this big boom that happened to me. And then I could see when I compared it with other people. But it wasn't until later that I really understood the structural discrimination that we were discriminated even in the way that the army classified us. There's another piece that we have to put into place of the story of Shoshana Madmoni Gerber, and that is that your aunt had a baby taken when she was brought in. I mean, they're going to the absorption camp and the baby was taken theoretically to a hospital and disappears from her view. In 2009, you wrote a book called Israeli Media and Framing the Internal Conflict, the Yemenite Babies Affair. And a lot of people in the U.S. have no idea what the Yemenite baby affair is. Bring people up to date. Okay, so this affair is the story and the narratives of hundreds, if not thousands, of people mostly from Yemeni descent, but from other Mizrahi ethnic groups as well. But two-thirds of the cases were Yemeni babies and children that were kidnapped, snatched from their parents upon arriving to immigrant camps, to the transit camps that were formed in different places around the country. The state over the years formed three different commissions to look into the kidnapping. One was formed in 67, another one in 88, and another one formed in 95. All three state commissions combined 
talk about 1,053 cases, but activists and other researchers are talking about many more. A recent book that was just published, he files 2,050 cases, and there are some activists who say that the number is even greater than that. There is no official recognition that there was a state-sponsored kidnapping of babies. Yet all these testimonies from families show, and especially in regards to Yemenites, that there was a clear state instruction to separate children from their parents upon arriving in those transit camps. And they were told that the babies will be better off in what was called baby houses because they were stone structured and they were safer for the kids than the 10 and sometimes tents that the parents stayed in. So, you know, the typical scenario was that a mother was allowed to come and nurse her baby several times a day. And sometime during the time that the parents were not there, the babies were usually taken to a hospitals. And we have many testimonies of nurses and ambulance drivers and people testifying that babies were in fact taken, never to be returned, that they were not properly identified when leaving. So they almost were destined to disappear. That's how the state defines it. I understand that there was a a negative attitude by the European-centric Jews there looking down on the Arab-centric Jews. And so, you know, there was discrimination in that direction. It still is not obvious to me what happens to the babies. I mean, if you're afraid that their demographics are going to overtake the state, which was evidently one of the concerns, don't you kill the babies? which I think maybe would have been too much, but evidently there's more likelihood that they were given to other people's care or sent to the U.S.? Probably sent to the U.S. and other places for adoption. And that's in line with other similar affairs that happened around the world. So that's nothing new. You know, when you compare it to the Australian story, to what happened in Canada, and there is always this, you know, racism always operates in contradicting ways. And governments always want to exercise their power on weak population through the children. I mean, we just witnessed this, you know, in the southern border in the United States. Again, the state separating children from their parents in order to demonstrate that power. So this was done all over the world for different reasons. But the mechanism, if you look at the different affairs, it is very similar. You know, and I say that when I talk to my Jewish brothers and sisters in the United States, again, it's tied this disbelief. It's kind of tied into the notion, the Zionist or the religious notion that we are special, that we are chosen. And I always, I hate to break it to you, but we're not that special. You might be very special individually. I, mean, we I can... tell my children that they're very special. They're very special to me. I always see it as what's preventing us from acknowledging tough narratives. And this shouldn't be news to anybody living in the United States. The, the United States is not rushing to acknowledge its injustices to the indigenous population, uh, even about slavery. I always, it's interesting to me, I have two boys in high school. In, in when they're studying history here, they went to Washington, D.C., that usual trip that kids do in eighth grade. They study more about the Holocaust than they did about slavery. I mean, where is the Museum of Slavery in the United States? Having been exposed to the Yemenite babies affair, having experienced the discrimination, you would have understood at that point that the Zionist project was flawed in terms of prejudice. But that's not the same as a deeper critique that you came to later. 
So talk about the next step. So you see it's got flaws, you've experienced them, they've hit your family, and yet there's a bigger picture. Yeah, the bigger picture is to resist the notion that, and that for that end, I think that Caroline's title for the book is right on, because the Zionist movement is making a, a great effort to make sure that these two terms are synonyms. Judaism and Zionism are synonym, and it's not necessarily the case. It shouldn't be the case. And I think that thinking about it this way is preventing people or us as a community of criticizing all the tragedies and the victimization of Jews by other Jews in Israel. So that notion that you can't criticize, that you are immediately labeled as anti-Israel, it's completely bogus. I mean, I do that out of my love for my country and out of my love for my community. You certainly had a number of stories that you heard through your parents about their growing up, their existence in Yemen. One of the accusations of a person who is not Zionist, who is Jewish, is that you're a self-hating Jew. I and mean, that's one of the slurs that's put upon you. It struck me when you were talking about how the Israeli culture was trying to get you to be a self-hating Arab, if you will right? What stories did you hear that made you think that your father and other family growing up in Yemen, that they were a second-class citizen because they were Jews in a primary Muslim environment? Was that the case as well? Well, it was to some degree the case in some places during some time. So I don't want to idolize. And one time somebody asked me, so you want to go back to Yemen? I, I don't want to go back to Yemen now. I wasn't born in Yemen. My father, my parents, they talked about sometimes there were tensions and sometimes they needed, when they were fighting, the instructions to buy the imam or the political regime at the time to take any orphan and to turn them into Muslims. They battled that in all kinds of way. My father was one. When his father died, when he became an orphan, he had to flee to be with some family in Sana'a in the capital. But on the other hand, many stories are of harmony with the Muslim community that they lived in. My father always told me about how in the village that they lived, it's called Sayan, there was so much respect to his father, who was a local rabbi, that the Muslims would come for him when they had disputes. They wanted him to be the judge. So there was a lot of respect. They were considered, on the one hand, second class. It isn't like they couldn't ride a horse, but they could ride a donkey. Things like that. They couldn't carry a weapon. So they were issues. But on the other hand, they were protected by the imam who considered them Ahlul Kitab, which means the people of the book. So consider them as people who should be protected. And again, I, I don't mean to idolize it, but in the end, the anti-Semitism that we witnessed in Nazi Germany happened in Europe and not in the Arab world. I was thinking that maybe the impulse, the need for Zionism was more pressing in Europe than it was in the Arab world. And so the whole Zionist exploit maybe fit better with the story that the Ashkenazi Jews were bringing. Right. But the story that they told the Mizrahi community is that they needed to be saved from their Arab rulers, that they needed to be rescued and kind of gently ushered into modernity. And that's a, it's a complete distortion. So many people came from places that were way more urban and modern than some places in Europe, in Eastern Europe. 
folks, we've been speaking with Shoshana Madmoni Gerber, amongst other things. She's Associate Professor of Communication and Journalism at Suffolk University in Massachusetts. She is also the author of Israeli Media and Framing the Internal Conflict, the Yemenite Babies Affair. Thank you again, Shoshi, for joining us. It's so wonderful. Thank you for doing your work of enlightenment. And I think this is so important of self-education, the way that we find those cracks and then we open it up to a greater truth behind them. Thank you for doing that work and joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for your interest in this topic and for having me today. You can hear my full, uncut interview with Shashona Madmoni Gerber on NordenSpiritRadio.org as a bonus excerpt along with those of the others included in this program. You see, any one of these contributors to reclaiming Judaism from Zionism could have filled up the entire hour, but I chose instead to give you highlights of some of my interviews with them. I highly recommend listening to the full visit with wonderful additional depth and stories. That's what Norton Spirit Radio is about. Slow radio with depth and the time to be present with world healing workers. We've got one more guest for Spirit in Action today. Emily Siegel is staff for Eyewitness Palestine, website eyewitnesspalestine.org, formerly known as Interfaith Peace Builders. As a former Zionist herself, Emily was changed and helps offer to others the opportunity to see things in Israel-Palestine with new eyes. Her chapter in the book is called Finding Community and the Right Pair of Glasses, and she joins us by phone from the Washington, D.C. area. Emily, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. How long have you been working with Eyewitness Palestine? This fall, it will have been 10 years that I've been working there. About how many people go per year? We usually send about 90 people to 100 a year. How many of the people that you take on Eyewitness Palestine on this journey, how many of them get flipped around, you know, maybe not 180 degrees, but get radically changed by their visit? I mean, I would say everyone is radically changed in some way. You know, even if their views aren't flipped around, I think even those who are incredibly knowledgeable and have spent a lot of time working on this issue, if they've never been there before, it's still a radical change that they go through because it's just very hard to really get a grasp of what is happening and to the extent without seeing it for your own eyes. But in terms of politics, I mean, every year that's different who joins us. But, you know, we definitely, I would say, have a handful of people who come in thinking one way, whatever way that might be, and come out of the delegations thinking something completely different and it completely reshaping their lives to maybe devote their entire life to this work now when it was something they were just discovering or just starting to think about critically. What's the self-described mission of Eyewitness Palestine? We are, I mean, our mission is to bring people to Palestine um, and to give them an educational program before and after in order to raise awareness and to get people active in order to change U.S. foreign policy and the sort of understandings of Palestine in their own communities. So when you say change U.S. policy, since we now give more than $5 billion a year to Israel, and uh, as we've seen under the Trump administration, the so-called peace deals that he's coming up with are very slanted. 
I think that implicit in that change means that you're trying to get it more balanced and so that everybody's being seen. Or would you describe it differently? I would just describe it as a policy that promotes a just peace there. So not just a peace where there's no overt violence, but where there's peace with justice. So yes, you know, changing some of the slanted policies that we have that really uphold the Israeli occupation and making sure that we're having equal rights for all, the ability for anyone who would like to go there to be able to go there, really making sure that everyone there feels like justice is served to them as well. Could you give me an idea of what the typical itinerary of the 90 people each year that go for Eyewitness Palestine, what do they actually do? Sure. So they spend about 10 days on the ground. During that, those 10 days, usually they have about 30 different meetings or tours. Those meetings and tours are a variety of things. Meeting with community leaders, both Palestinian and maybe Israeli meeting with different nonprofits and NGOs that are working to try and change the status quo there. And then also going to different communities and seeing the realities of how people live and the struggles that they face. And so it's really, you know, a combination of going and seeing for yourself, hearing from individuals who are there, and then also learning about organizations that are trying to change what's happening there, including also individuals that are changing what's happening there. And then, of course, because we understand that it may be the only time someone gets there, and for a lot of folks, this is a place that's important to them religiously, we also make sure to make time for folks to visit various religious and historic sites. Some are planned tours that we do, but then a lot of the time it's giving free time for people to see and visit the places that are most important to them. When people remember that the name of the organization used to be Interfaith Peace Builders, then you can clearly see that the religious spiritual aspect is important. And I think it's important that we get into Emily Siegel's spiritual perspective on this. My understanding is, and that's from your chapter in Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation, your chapter, you talk about growing up basically a cultural Jew, because I guess your mother was a member of Washington ethical society. Your dad must have had more Jewish leaning because when they got divorced when you were nine, that's when you started to become more familiar with your Jewish background. So give us a little bit of the idea of that journey for you, religiously, spiritual, identity-wise. Yeah. So as you talked about, when I was younger, we were always Jewish and I knew that I was Jewish from a young age, but really that meant celebrating some of the holidays and spending time with family that always made me happy around the holidays. But beyond that, I didn't really learn very much about Judaism as a religion and certainly nothing about the connections to Israel. When my parents got divorced, my father decided that it would be a great idea for me to go to Hebrew school as a social outlet to where he moved. For me, that is what it was. It was a social outlet. I loved going to Hebrew school. I think there were a lot of children there who were forced there by their parents from a young age. And, you know, it was like more school at night. But for me, it was meeting new people, learning a new language studying something that seemed cool and fun and getting to create a community. And for me, I think that was what really tied me into Judaism is the sense of community that I found there, spending time as a teenager in Israel, which is what sort of solidified both my ties to Judaism, as well as my interest in Israel at the time and feeling a sense of connection there. 
Would you say at that point you were either behaviorally or explicitly a Zionist? I would say definitely behaviorally. I don't think when I was 16, I really understood what being a Zionist meant, but I definitely was a Zionist, whether I knew it or not at that point. Yes. Could you say a few words about it? And again, people can read the chapter in Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, edited by Carolyn Karcher. But could you say a little bit about your transition? You're a Zionist, and yet at a certain point, you are working now for the last 10 years for our organization, which is definitely balancing against the Zionist story. So how did you get there? It was quite a long journey that probably lasted about 15 years. And I think the initial part of it was actually growing more and more Zionist. As I said, when I was 16, I spent time in Israel and that really solidified my connection there. I went back as a university student for a semester and spent actually eight months there studying Hebrew and then learning about Israeli society from an Israeli perspective. And when I came back from that, I joined the pro-Israel group at my university, became the president six months later. And at that point, I definitely would have called myself a Zionist and been a very proud Zionist. But I also, during that time, was also always aware of sort of the peace movements that were happening in Israeli society and not totally understanding them or knowing where to really get my questions around that answered. But it also really connected to things that I knew around the U.S. society growing up. So going to peace rallies and protests with my parents or understanding things around racism and the civil rights movement because my parents and their generation were all very highly involved in that for my family. And so learning about that, and at this point in my life, I love Israel, but I also believe in peace okay, I need to go there and figure out what peace looks like. And so I went back there after university for a year in a peace and social justice program that was also a Zionist program. But I ended up working for an organization that worked with Israeli and Palestinian youth. Through that experience, I went to the West Bank for the first time. I met Palestinians for the first time. And the sort of lens of Israel as this utopian place for Jewish people was totally broken for me because I saw the oppression from my own hands. I was hearing from 12-year-olds these stories of, you know, their parents going to prison or the checkpoints they had to go to to get to school. And between that and seeing it, I left a completely different person, still with a lot of questions and still with searching for a lot of answers, but certainly with a very different lens than when I started there. And I was lucky enough at that point to return to the U.S. to a graduate program in peace and conflict resolution at American University. And I met some amazing individuals there, both professors and colleagues in my program. Through that and through some experiences with internships during that time, I just kind of got the historical and academic background that I needed to go along with this direct experience that I had had there. So by the time I finished graduate school, I definitely did not call myself a Zionist. I'm not sure if I called myself an anti-Zionist at that point yet, but I knew I wanted to work for Palestinian rights and liberation, and I wanted to dedicate my life to making sure that others whether they're like me or in other places, are able to really understand what's happening there because it is so distorted in the media here. And it is really easy to go through life not knowing what's happening there. 
You spoke pretty easily of the transition that you went through, but I suspect that somewhere down in your guts, it must have torn you apart at a certain point to, as you said, you were the president of the Zionist group at your campus, and now you're getting closer. You got close to being an anti-Zionist. I was relatively lucky that I found myself in a very understanding community when I came back to graduate school. Folks were very open to me asking the questions that I needed to ask and going through this transition with them. And I was just very lucky to have a group of friends who I'm still incredibly close with today who helped me a lot in those times. Certainly with my family, it was something that I was nervous about. I wasn't sure what my family would think, but I found that more of my family was open to it than I even expected. My father, who's the one who you know gave me this education and started me on this journey, when I first came back, it was the summer of 2006 and the war with Lebanon was happening and I was going to protest against it. And he had a lot of questions about why I was going, didn't quite understand where this was coming from. But we also had a lot of back and forth discussions, mostly through email, about it. And I think that in some ways opened his eyes to things. But also, you know, he had a lot of the ties to civil rights movements. And, you know, his father was incredibly active in the labor movement and very progressive himself. And so, you know, it was pretty easy for him to understand where I was coming from. And my mother also was relatively apolitical at the time. But also, you know, she loved me and I was her daughter. And so she wanted to learn from me. And she actually joined me in 2009 on a delegation with Interfaith Peacebuilders before I officially worked there. And that completely changed her life and brought us really close together. And then we'd go to protests together. And um, she was she was an artist, so she would make all the signs for protests. And so I think, you know, I was very lucky in that way that my closest family was very receptive to my political changes and my viewpoints. So I think now you describe yourself, perhaps you could say Emily Siegel is anti-Zionist. What does that mean to you? Uh, because I imagine in some ways you still very much love Israel. Yes, I would definitely say my name is Emily Siegel and I'm an anti-Zionist. You know, I think to me what that means is that I don't believe that we as Jewish people have a right to that specific land or that there should be a country for Jewish people built on top of another nation that was already there. You know, that doesn't mean that I think all of the Jews should have to leave that area because that's I, that's impossible. But I don't believe that Israel should exist in the way that it does today. Yeah, I mean, I do have a love for that area of the land. But in a lot of ways, that love for it grew even more as I got to know Palestinian communities there. And so my love for it, I think, has changed from a connection because of my background more to a connection because of the beautiful people that live there. You know, I would be completely happy if one day there wasn't an Israel in the way that there is today. I don't know what the land there would be called exactly. If it was Stein, that would be wonderful. But, you know, I think that there needs to be a big change and the Jewish community really shouldn't stake a claim to that place as their own. 
In your job as program director for Eyewitness Palestine, and folks, that website is eyewitnesspalestine.org. It, of course, is on nordenspiritradio.org. But in your role as program director, you have to facilitate a lot of people traveling over there. Has that gotten harder, easier? How has that changed over these 10 years that you've been active with the organization? Entry has definitely gotten a lot harder, and it's something that we focus on. I myself was denied entry a few years ago because of my work, but I was able to go through that situation relatively easily because I had had experience supporting a dozen or so people through before me, um, a denial experience. And so we can't guarantee entry for anyone, but we work really hard to help people strategize around their own entry. And it's really sad that entry has become so hard because people who have family there, people who have never been there, but it is their family's homeland, Palestinians mostly are the ones who are denied entry and not able to go. And for me, since I was denied, my goal is to try and get every Palestinian who wants to go on our delegation in. Because for me, if I can use my experience to help others be able to gain entry, who I think really have a right to go, then I'm completely fine with not going myself. Of course, I'd love to go back someday. But for now, I'm very happy that others that I work with who are Palestinian are able to go. And I think that it's completely fine for me not to go for now. Well, I'm thankful for this work you're doing. I so admire people who go through the hard process of discovering their blind spots. There's so many people who are afraid to leave the comfortable thing that they so tenaciously hold on to. So I admire for that all the greater the people like yourself who have braved the unknown to find their way to peace and justice. And doing your work with Eyewitness Palestine certainly is a great way to help people remove the veil from their own eyes. And so thank you for doing that work and thank you for contributing your chapter to Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you. That was Emily Siegel, and she can help you have an eye-opening visit to Palestine via eyewitnesspalestine.org. And she was preceded by Shoshana Madmoni Gerber and Carolyn Karcher today and Chris Godshall and Rabbi Brant Rosen last week, among the 40 contributors of personal stories to Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism. Well worth getting and reading each story. Also remember that the full uncut interviews with each of my guests, much longer with great additional stories and insights, is available via northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Steve Chase for connecting me up with Carolyn Karcher and sending me his personal copy of the book. And thanks to you for joining us here today, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel the echo of our